Hello again and welcome to Ken Drew's Real Dirt Gardening 2.0. You know, trees and shrubs provide architecture. Annuals may embroider the design, but it's the perennials that supply the enduring keynotes of texture, the calculated sequences and rhythms of color and forms. Perennials dominate through persistence. If you've chosen your plants well, once you lay down a theme in perennials, it returns year after year, becoming the framework around which you arrange other plants and furnishings. And that's from the introduction of a new book, Essential Perennials, by Ruth Rogers Clausen and Thomas Christopher. And today's guest is Tom Christopher, and we're going to talk about perennials. Now, this book has 2,700 individual genera and lots of varieties and species within those genera uh, from which you can choose and all of these plants have been tested but they've also been tested to be found on the market whether it's from seed or from plants or at your local nursery and garden center or through the mail and uh, all you need is this book and a search engine and you can find just about every one well, Tom's going to tell us not so much about all those individual perennials, but a kind of general overview of a perennial garden and how to help those plants to grow and be as lush and beautiful as you want them to be, which is what everyone wants. And I know in my own world, I've failed plenty of times with perennials, but Tom's going to help me succeed. About 25 years ago, Ruth Rogers Clausen and the late Nicholas H. Ekstrom came out with Perennials for American Gardens. It was the first book of its kind and became enormously popular. People clamored for an update that would include scores of perennials that have come on the market in the subsequent years. Finally, Clausen and her co-author Thomas Christopher have answered the call with a new book, Essential Perennials, with photographs by the husband and wife team of Alan and Linda Dietrich. Today's guest is co-author Tom Christopher, and I am glad to welcome him to Ken Drew's Real Dirt. Hello, Tom. Hi, Ken. Well, back in 1989, Perennials for American Gardens introduced us to the ingredients needed to create flower gardens inspired by what I could call the craze for English plantings, and it was, uh, it was kind of Northeast-centric. This new book addresses all of America and introduces us, introduces us to 2,700 species, varieties, and hybrids. But first of all, I'd like to know how you and Ruth, who has been a guest on the show, divided the work and worked together on this beautiful new book. Well, Ruth is, uh, was my first horticulture teacher way back when, um, when I started as a student at the New York Botanical Garden. So she was somebody, she really... Um, Made, made most of the decisions um, in that respect. And we went down a list of uh, perennials and went over it together, the list from the old book and then things that had come along since and things that we dropped from the old book and then divided up the list and went to work on and each took different entries. And, and then I guess you'd read each other's and have some input and maybe editing back and forth. Back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. This took a long time to put together. I was wondering, how, how long about, do you think? Oh, I think it was four years. You know, people think that books are just, you know, oh, write another book, write another book, write another book. I think books generally take about four years. Well, you say that with considerable feeling, Ken, so I know you've been there. <laughs> <laughs> well, most of the listeners to the show are not really beginners at gardening but even 
in spite of that, I'd like you to tell us what a perennial, or maybe even better, a herbaceous or an herbaceous perennial is. Well, it's a, a plant that um, lives many years if you treat it properly, and um, it dies back to the roots in the fall, and then comes up again in the spring and um, blooms and flowers and then goes dormant again. So it's got, uh, you know, as opposed to, people don't think of trees as perennials, but of course they are. So it's, in, in this case... But they're woody perennials. Right. So these are soft tissue plants. Exactly. Well, the book includes so many plants and also tells us a lot about cultivating these plants. Each entry begins with the plant attributes, the flower color, the season of bloom, the height width, light requirements, cold hardiness and sometimes heat tolerance. Can you comment on some of these? Yeah, you know, this one of the things that I found very useful was that I gardened for four years in Central Texas. So I have some experience with uh, gardening in a very hot, humid place. <coughs> Excuse me, which also, of course, describes much of the Northeast and uh, Mid-Atlantic states in the summertime. Mm -hmm. uh, so summer, summer uh, hardiness is something that I'm keenly aware of, and it was something that was not addressed in the, the previous book. And um, so we looked very much at, at what plants were good, you know, because there are many plants that will do just fine in dry heat but don't do well in the humid heat, um, summer flocks being one of them for the most part. Um, so we looked at that. And then we just, um, the other characteristics are pretty, pretty standard characteristics, but we also paid a lot more attention to um, the native habitats and range of the plants. Um, this is something that gardeners have become more aware of in the last generation, and it's it's very important. Among other things, it's a great predictor of whether or not a plant is going to do well in your garden. And, and you're right; these are things that are not often addressed, especially the the heat tolerance. Uh, you know, there was an attempt to do a heat zone map uh, for the USDA, and it just didn't get very much attention, even though it's it's so important. We want to know how. A plant, how cold a plant can take it. So a lot of a lot of plants from the southeast, for example, we can grow in the northeast, but you can't turn that around. You can't grow a lot of plants from the northeast in the southeast because they just won't tolerate the heat. Or the southwest, in particular. Mm -hmm. I mean, if a plant, I mean, a good rule of thumb is if a plant is silver, gray colored, and furry, it's probably <laughs> not going to do well in uh, our hot, humid summers. Right. And when you say hour, you mean? Uh, well, I mean, northeast is, you know, we we have shorter summers than than mid-Atlantic or, or southeast, but the plants still struggle at the, uh, the height of the summer in the northeast. So it's not usually as fatal as it is. I mean, in the southeast, it, the plant just melts. A lot of these um, arid, arid land plants just kind of melt and um die away but they struggle in the in the northeast in the summertime too well uh, this discussion makes me think about soil and drainage and that's something you really pay attention to uh, tell me a little bit about either soil well soil prep but also the right plant for the right place as they say yeah that's that's a, a big focus of ours that second point um, because you can you know Change. You can transform the soil in small areas, but it's enormously labor-intensive. I mean, digging down you know, a couple of spade uh, blades deep and 
digging in organic matter and all these things can transform the soil, but frankly, it's, it's better to go with uh, plants that like the conditions you've got so that you don't have to create a totally artificial habitat for them. Well, I guess when you look through the book, the first thing you are attracted to are, are the photographs and the way the plants look, and it's it's just so delicious, but it it doesn't really make sense to grow a tender plant in a place that it's not going to survive, and as you said, the plants with the furry gray leaves in a place with humid, hot summers. There's, you know, there's something that I call tour de force gardening, which is people who insist on growing alpines in humid lowlands and subtropicals in sort of alpine uplands mm -hmm. and I've never entirely understood it. People pride themselves tremendously on somehow cheating nature that way. Um, my inclination has always been to take the easier road and go with what nature wants you to do in your area. Well we're going to talk about that in a minute too. Um, one thing I wanted to point out in the in the book and I've, I'm, I'm almost perplexed <laughs> I always find common names almost useless uh, for plants, and some, some plants have, well, there might be five different plants that have the same common names, and sometimes I don't even know the common names. I was looking in the book, and one of my favorite plants is Acanthus hungaricus, and I never knew it had a common name until I looked in your book, and it says Balkan Bear's Breach, but it, it's really almost useful, useless. You try to find that plant by that name, and you'll have a lot of trouble. Uh, but if you know the real name, not only can you find the plant, which is so important if you're trying to shop for something, you can't just, even even having the genus name of Acanthus, that, that just narrows it down to several dozen plants you might come across. And another thing about the real names is when you know the real names of the plant, you treat them differently. You give them, you know them as individuals and you give them what they need. But in recent times, the names of plants have been Oh my gosh, they've been changed so much. And in your book, you have the current actual scientific name in all its detail. And then you have the list of synonyms often, because as you know, and you can give me plenty of examples of plants that have gotten their names changed even in the last 10 years. Right, there are almost no asters left. They've all been turned into things like symphiotrichums and so forth. So but a lot of the catalogs still carry the older names. You know, gardeners tend to be conservative, whereas botanists um, want to update constantly, and it, for good reason. I mean, what they're doing reflects new information, new information about how plants are related to each other, and they're using new tools now these days to determine that. So they come, so they've changed around some of our old-fashioned ideas about what plants were related to what. But it, it does make it tricky for gardeners searching them all down. Um, you know, the, the common names, we included those because the English names, because for many of the, the most common and traditional garden perennials, people still think of them in those terms. But it actually became quite a difficult research thing for things like your acanthus. It took a while to track down what were the common names and then decide which common name you would use because there were generally a flood of them. Well, I think it's a good idea to stick with flocks because the Latin name is the same as the common name. And uh, unfortunately, aster doesn't work anymore. <laughs> right. Hosta, we know, we know more Latin than we think. Yep, 
and, and you know, definitely. And the Latin names are, are easier to remember, I think, than, than people. It's just a habit, really, of getting into and getting over your initial intimidation about them being in a foreign language. Um, another thing we included with the names of the plants was their family names too because that's useful for people if one if a plant one plant from a family does well in your garden chances are other plants in that family may do well in your garden so under right underneath the name of the genus and species of, of uh, each perennial we listed the family that it belongs to well and also if if one plant in a family is resistant to browsing by deer uh, chances are that maybe some of the other members of that family have those attributes as well which I've found to be the case. Yeah, yeah. We, we were lucky, you know, we included information with plants if they were deer resistant. Um, and Ruth, of course, has done a book on that and uh, a very successful book on that. So we, we had access to all of her research on which plants deer snack on and, and which they're less likely to snack on. Although, you know, if they get hungry enough, they'll eat practically anything. Practically anything. And, and that's definitely proved this year uh, throughout a lot of the country because uh, it's been very cold and very snowy and the deer are eating just about everything they can find. Yeah, they're pretty desperate, which, you know, I have a certain amount of compassion for them. On the other hand, I much prefer it when they eat my neighbor's garden than my own. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a whole nother topic. <laughs> right. Uh, you mentioned in the book that most of the plants that you've listed are commercially available. And in, for example, in my area, in the northeast county of the state of New Jersey in Sussex County, we used to have maybe about a dozen nurseries and garden centers. And now we're down to three, I think, uh, besides the two box stores. So uh, if you, well, even if you find a good nursery that isn't in California or some or the Philadelphia area, and there are even fewer there too, they're not going to have 2,700 perennials. So what are some of the ways that people can find the plants, which I, I know they are available? Yeah, we did not list any plants that didn't have a commercial source. Um, it just seemed useless kind of taunting people with plants they can't get. Um, some of them are difficult to find, but they're not impossible. You know, the Internet is a great thing for that um, because there are so many specialist nurseries hidden away in various areas of the country that, that you know, a generation ago would have been you had to be a real specialist to know about these things. Um, and now you can go online and do a, a, a search and generally turn up a, a source for each plant. And that's, I think, the, you know, if you're going to get the full benefit of perennials in your garden, you have to be willing to do mail order shopping. Right. And you have to have the actual real names because you're not going to find Posey if you're looking for Posey. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's one point we make in the introduction to the book, that, you know, the same common name may be applied to many different plants across the country. So if you don't use the Latin name, you're going to get plants you don't want. Well, of course, you have the photographs of the plants at their most gorgeous peak moment. And people might say, oh, my plant only looks like that for a week. Well, what are you going to show a picture of the plant not looking perfect? You have... You know, I, I get a, I've been accused of that, too, showing a, a beautiful garden when it looks beautiful and how unrealistic that is, although most gardens do look beautiful for at least two weeks. And why would you show a picture? Well, why would you show a flowering perennial that wasn't flowering? You want to show that. 
Yeah, you know, and and it's of course it's when the garden's beautiful that keeps us coming back and sustains us through all the hard work and the bad seasons. But we did include um, very detailed descriptions of the foliage in each plant entry because of course the foliage is what you see most of the summer and uh, spring and fall. You know, with perennials that there's some perennials like the uh, coneflowers that are long blooming, but nonetheless even those are in in leaf longer than they're in flower. So. The foliage is important, and we include information about the texture and the size and the shape and the color of the foliage for each plant. As you say, it's the most persistent plant attribute. Yeah, um, that's what you're going to get most of the time. Right. You know? So you want to know about that, and that's something that you include in all the descriptions. So talk about cultivation. Now, I know it's a lot to ask, and maybe if you just touch on some of the points like soil and soil preparation and irrigation and staking, uh, you have, you have of course, the information on maintenance and pinching and deadheading and cutting back and pests too and pest resistance, but the irrigation and staking, those are things that most books don't get into. Well, some books don't mention staking as if it's a dirty secret, you know? <laughs> yeah, you know, staking is a great example of, of, of uh, how you benefit from timeliness because you want to stake early when the early in the season when the plants are little and let them grow into the stakes rather than, you know, wait until they're flopped and then sort of cinch them up with, with um, twine and, and stakes and then they look like they're, you know, waiting to be burned at the stake when you get done. Mm. Whereas if you put in the staking earlier, we like to use up. Uh, Pea, pea sticks are brushing up where you use natural twigs and poke them into the ground around the plant and let the plant grow up through them and then just sort of find its support hither, you know, here and there from the different twigs. Well, you know, that's something that Americans uh, really don't know about. <laughs> brushing up and pea sticking. Uh, I, there's some shrubs that I grow that are very twiggy and I grow them so I'll have something to brush up with and I love to use birch because uh, of the color of the new twigs is kind of brown it just disappears in the garden and it's very twiggy uh, I wonder do you do that too do you actually have some shrubs that you turn to for pea sticking oh sure and and you know they're great also for for climbing plants too as sort of natural trellises for climbing plants you know, I'd like to get back to um, irrigation a bit, though, please, because I please. think that's probably the most important part of um, plant maintenance and one that's consistently kind of ignored. I mean, people think that, you know, give the plants a good drink, you know, give them a sort of flood the garden with water periodically will do the job, and it's, that's actually harmful. And you want to give the plants, the different types of plants, enough water but not too much. And that means not only having a, a, the proper soil, you know, usually well-drained soil for perennials, but not always. Some like it like it moist and um, a kind of soggier soil. Um, a few do anyway. But it's it's giving it to them in the quantities they need at the time they need it. And um, to encourage them particularly to send their roots deep into the ground by deep watering. Well, what's the difference between flooding and deep watering? Deep watering, you know, it's... it's um, I check when, I, when I'm watering, so I don't just keep, you don't want water just running off across the surface of the ground. You want to apply it slowly and steadily so that it soaks in. And then wait until it gets down. You can, what you can do is you can take something like a, oh, um, a, 
a stake or even a trowel and poke it into the ground. And when it meets with hard resistance, when you're watering, you know that the water hasn't gone down that deep yet. The water, the soil is still dry down there. So you can actually tell how deep you're watering by poking down into the ground. And um, I like to get the water down, you know, at least eight inches deep. Uh, so it's kind of a generalization, but in your book, you, you are more specific about who wants that and who doesn't want that. I, I think in the perfect world, you'd have excellent drainage, that stays moist and has a guaranteed snow cover through the winter and you'd be fine. <laughs> right. Yes, and the deer have migrated somewhere. Yeah, there are no deer. Right. As long as we're wishing for perfection, why not Why not include that? I'm speaking with Tom Christopher, who is the co-author of a new book, Essential Perennials, and we're talking about essential perennials. Uh, we only have a little bit of time left, uh, so I can't tell you about all my problems <laughs> and have you solve them, <laughs> of which I have many. But that's another nice thing about the book. It's kind of realistic, uh, unlike some of these dreamy books that just say it's easy, it's instant, because it's not. <laughs> and in some cases, you even say don't go for the big plant. Yeah, no, you know, in terms of uh, buying plants, you're better off with modest, compact plants that are well-grown. Um, and then, you know, in terms of practicality, one thing we really emphasize is pest and disease resistance. You know, there's been a lot of testing in recent years, particularly at the Chicago Botanic Garden, for things like flocks that are mildew resistant. And we made a point of, of checking out that testing and including these in there. I mean, it, there's so many plants that are beautiful, but so hard to grow, like traditional delphiniums. You know, and there's a, a strain of there's a whole race of delphiniums now the new millennium series that's been bred to be disease resistant and works much better in our eastern gardens than the traditional delphiniums so you know these things and they're available as seed too so they're cheap um so they're i think that's important information for gardeners you know what's going to survive and, and flourish in their garden as of well course as the most important uh well as i mentioned we don't have much time left but i would like you to tell me some of your favorite rugged tried and true perennials ones that have been you know just stalwarts for you in your gardening oh gosh well you know they're they're not this is not rocket science but i love peonies in particular the first garden i ever took care of had been abandoned for about 15 20 years and there was a perennial garden there and the only thing that came up still were forget-me-nots virginia bluebells hostas uh, irises and peonies so i've been a big fan of those plants ever since um you know, the the only problem with hostas, of course, is that they're deer candy. Mm -hmm. But I love irises. I love the uh, Siberian irises in particular. Um, and then there's so many wonderful peonies. Uh, tip about peonies, by the way, is that the double types tend to be more fragrant. But they also have heavier flowers. Well, you can use the intersectional ones. Ah. And those have stronger stems where they've crossed the... Uh, traditional herbaceous peonies with tree peonies and they've got much tougher stems and they're less likely to flop and they're a little bit pricey but they do live they outlive us <laughs> i was going to so, say forever you know, this, this is a gardening is an can be an expensive habit it is with me but it's a, i feel a healthy one so i could be wasting the money on all kinds of self-destructive things and instead if i spend it on a plant i'm doing the earth a little bit of a favor well, if you spend $50 on a peony and it lives for 100 years, that's not so bad. <laughs> right, if you amortize it. I may right. not be here to enjoy it for 100 exactly. years. Exactly. Hopefully somebody will. 
So in our remaining seconds, what are what are a couple of things that you've just discovered or that you discovered doing the book that you didn't really know about uh, and you have tried or you're going to try? Oh, gosh, there's so many. I think the um, mildew-resistant flocks and then also the flocks that are um, – that aren't summer flocks, like flocks, uh, smooth flocks, flocks glabarima, and uh, which is naturally um, mildew and uh, spider mite resistant. So that and flocks maculata are two that I'm going to try in my garden as substitutes for summer flocks. Well, it's been a, a pleasure to speak with you, and it's great to have essential perennials. But I'm thrilled that it's out, and the pictures are gorgeous. Praise from you, Ken, is particularly appreciated. Well, thank you again for being my guest. I've been speaking with Tom Christopher, and we'll talk again, and congratulations on the book. Thank you. It's great to have an updated reference for perennials, for their latest names, so that you can find exactly what you want. If you're looking for a Simicifuga, you're going to have to look for an Actia. Thank you again for joining me, and please join me again next week for another edition of Ken Drew's Real Dirt Gardening 2.0. See you then. <laughs>